Hello and welcome to another episode of our podcast from the Blue Earth Summit, a movement and community driving positive action for our natural world. In this series, we'll bring you some of the highlight talks and conversations from our first summit in Bristol in October 2021. In this episode, who owns the outdoors? Keme and Zerum hosted this panel discussion on our campfire stage to discuss trends in diversity, whether that's socio-economic, race, religion or ability across different parts of the outdoor industry. We're going to look at the reasons or theories behind these trends, why it matters for all of us, the connection to mental health and what needs to happen to change the situation. Keme is joined by Melissa Reed, double world surf champion and Paralympian medalist, Amira Patel, founder of the Wanderlust Women, an adventure and hiking group for Muslim women, Kelly Smith from Black Girls Hike, a group that's changing stereotypes and empowering black women into into accessing the outdoors, and finally Phil Young, founder of the Outsiders Project, who are promoting inclusion and diversity within the culture and the community of the outdoors. And it was Phil who Keme started off by asking him who he thinks owns the outdoors. Who owns the outdoors? I mean, it's a very provocative question. Um, I mean, if you take it as a very literal sense, probably no one, no one here. If you own a house, you're amongst 5% of the land ownership in Britain. Uh, most of it's, I think, owned by Forestry Commission or RSPB, Ministry of Defence, the Church, Crown people who have been given it by Henry VIII 400 years ago or something. Um, uh, but I think the question really, the, the more important question, is not who owns it, but who's, who's allowed access to it, who can, who can use it and who belongs in the outdoor. And I think if you look at people, especially people of colour, historically, we've been denied access to the outdoor, not just in this country, but even in our own home countries. You know, you only have to go back a few hundred years to, a couple of hundred years to see Europe going over to Africa and just deciding to section off part, well, the whole of the continent. I think there's two countries in Africa that, had, that weren't colonised, you know, and I think it's a pretty big continent, you know, and we've had Western cultures come over and not only strip the land and take the lands and uh, ship people out of the land to, to put them in other countries where they've not been allowed access to their own land. And even when they, even when they change things, even when slavery was a, a abolished and national parks in America, what have you, were set up, people of colour still weren't allowed into those spaces. You know, and that wasn't that long ago. So it's it's very difficult, I think, for people of colour to feel as though they belong in what we class as, as the outdoors. And I think there's, it's worth, actually, for a moment, thinking about what we even mean by, by the outdoors. You know, how we, how we perceive that. Because a lot of us don't have the opportunity to think, OK, well, the outdoors, it's when you go snowboarding or, or mountaineering or when you go surfing. Whereas, you know, people from my community, you know, might as well be talking about going to Mars because we don't go snowboarding, we don't go surfing, you know, we don't go hiking because it's been denied us for so long. So I think that's really the more important question rather than who owns it, who's allowed to go on it and who feels as though they belong in that space. Kelly Smith, you... 
uh, work very closely, a representative for Black Girls Hike. You've also got a master's in, in water resource management, which I think is fascinating. We'll come on to in a minute in terms of sustainability. But how does what Phil has said resonate with you? It's about access. Do you feel that in your personal story, you have been enabled to access the outdoors? Well, that's actually incredibly funny because one of the comments we get back on Black Girls Hike is um, there are no signs on national trails saying blacks aren't allowed or women aren't allowed. And I've never seen a poster saying you can't come. So what's what are the barriers? I can't see any barriers. Well, I think people that are old enough and wise enough to remember that even Phil's talking about internationally, even if we talk about specifically in the UK, signs saying no Irish, no blacks, no dogs were very prominent. Um, so to pretend that didn't occur would be, you know, incredibly forgetful. Um, to talk about Black Girls Hike and my role there and how that kind of works with sustainability, my master's is in flood risk engineering and risk assessment. And when you're thinking about how that intertwines with the outdoors and how people interact with the outdoors, why don't we explore? Well, Sarah Everard was going through her park to get home. <laughs> And, you know, she didn't make it. So if we're talking about what are the barriers, what are the access problems? Um, in Sussex, we had a young lady, I forgot her name. She was found on the beach. I think it was in, it was in East Sussex. So that's where I live. Why don't women go surfing? Why don't women go swimming? Why don't we go wild swimming? Um, in Brighton, it's quite a culture at six o'clock in the morning the seas are packed with women and men out there swimming and in the lakes swimming. That, that's sort of a Brighton thing to do. You went to Sussex, you know. <laughs> but what are the barriers? No, there, aren't, there isn't a literal fence at the beginning, but sometimes there are fences. I've participated in mass trespasses. Um, in the north, the, the great mass trespass that opened up the Peak District. The, these things aren't that long ago. They're in some of the people in this room is in within your lifetimes. So to pretend that these things are historic events that went on years and years ago, that's not the case. And Amira, uh, you know, the, I think one of the really important lessons for all of us over the last few years is to really understand what intersectionality means and that everybody experiences the outdoors differently. So uh, tell us about your story and um, the presence or lack of barriers and also what has enabled you to, to enjoy the outdoors and feel like you do belong there and you have got a right to be there. I think for me it's, when, we, when it comes to barriers and things like that, obviously you have like the, you know, the barriers of like the racism and things like that, but then as a Muslim woman, we have so much negativity within the media. So we also face like a lot of Islamophobia. So for me growing up, I, I was, my family, we were introduced to the outdoors and, you know, we did a lot of traveling and we explored the countryside, but not many people from our community had, had access to that because a lot of our grandparents came here to work. They were busy providing for the family, you know, working in these factories. So they didn't, they didn't have that um, access to give to the, you know, our parents to going to do like outdoor activities and things but then I think when it came to like our generation you know we're able to now sort of access to outdoors and open up communities um so for me um I was sort of always grown up in that environment but I realized a lot of the people from my community that they, they they just didn't go for a hike or do any sort of adventures and stuff 
Um, so when COVID happened and a lot of people were seeing what I was doing, it inspired me to then create the group, The Wonderless Women. And as soon as I created this group, it was such a big response because it was such a niche in the market to have a group specifically for Muslim women. And when it came down to it, it was just so that women, the women felt safe to be around people that dressed you know, the same way and look like the same way. And, you know, and we have our prayers that we do and things. So they were just, there was that niche there that was needed for a group to be made where people from my community can access the outdoors. And it's opened up so many opportunities for women, like all over the UK, to have that safe space. And like Kelly said, there's not a, it's not like, you know, oh, you're not allowed here. It's like the microaggressions that you receive. It's... Um, you know, the unseen barriers that a person who keeps saying, oh, there's, you know, the countryside for everyone. But if that person who, who is a typical, who may look like a typical hiker, they're not going to experience what we experience. So, as again, it's about, you know, talking about those unseen barriers and, like, challenging them. And so, in, in your experience, the, the women who you have introduced to the pleasure of hiking do you think many of them would never have had the confidence to have just got out there if it wasn't for the the comfort blanket of other people like them being around them? Um, yeah, 100%. Because if you, let's just you know, break it down, if you look at representation, you're not going to see a veiled woman surfing or you know, doing these like activities or things like that. And um, when they were able to see that and see that, okay, I've seen that now and... I'm able to do it as well. So that encouraged them. And so many women that came onto the group, they really wanted to do these things, but they just didn't know where to start, how to go about it. It was literally like a safety net for them and also being around people that look like them. So if they were to receive sort of any sort of racism or Islamic phobic comments, they know that they're, they're with a the group because we do receive them quite often. Um, so if someone's never been out and then they're going to go out and then they're going to have a bad experience, it's just going to deter them from doing it again but yeah a lot of the women they've started and they've progressed so much and you know we're trying to get them to do like leadership courses um, they're all adventuring on their own now in their own areas so I think it's just that start sometimes as well to sort of have a group where you just feel comfortable and M Melissa when we talk about progress um, you know not many of us in this entire uh, event can say they're actually world-class right? <laughs> Not many of us have, have um, you know, started hiking or surfing or whatever and, and risen all the way to the very, very top of the pile. And I'm curious to know from you, from a, from a disability perspective, if we go back to this question of who owns the outdoors, you know, the UK likes to think that it's gone a long way in terms of disability awareness, the Paralympics and everything. But if you take a partially sighted person now down to a surf club and say, I want them to, you know, or if you are a partially, and you go down and say, I want to have surf lessons, what, what is the response going to be? I mean, the response now is much better than it used to be. Um, a lot of the surf instructors in schools have being given the tools to work with people with disabilities, there's still always the odd place that you go to where they say, sorry, it's not within our risk assessment, we're not able to do this, we're not trained. And for visual impairments, people quite often just make assumptions. My first surf lesson, I lied, pretended I could see. They had no idea 
I, don't, I still don't think they do, to be honest. Um, and that was how I got into sport, was I lied my way into sport. My parents had to fight to get me into mainstream school. Uh, when everyone does their cycling proficiency at school, I was told I wasn't allowed. Um, and my dad went in and was like, she's doing it. He was like, I will sit there and block all the roads and she will get on a bike and join in with everyone else. There is no reason she can't. And if it wasn't for that mentality, I wouldn't be able to ride a bike. Um, And I think it's just changing people's mindsets on what is available, what you can do, rather than making the assumption that somebody can't do something just because they're slightly different, they have a different style of doing it. Um, But surfing, for one of the sports, is definitely the most accessible. And I think it has a lot to do with the culture involved that you go in the sea and people don't see colour, they don't see disabilities. All they see is people enjoying the ocean. And the conversation we were having last night was it's one of the few sports where you can have a world champion and someone going in the sea for the very first time next to each other doing the same thing at the exact same time and how many sports get that opportunity but i mean while there is clearly the the broader inclusion conversation is about perception and education uh in the in specifically in the disability space some of this has got to be about resources and because you know because we're talking adaptive kit might be additional safety measures and the rest of it and and that requires that's that's about investment isn't it yeah a lot of it is investment so if you were to use a wheelchair athlete who's had a spinal cord injury they can't necessarily use a standard surfboard even if they're just lying on it because as soon as the water hits them they're off so you're looking at having a special board for that person um, and for a surf school to invest in that is quite substantial and then you're looking at the cost of having two coaches per athlete and again it's always left up to the family of the person wanting to take part to cover their costs and obviously that is another big barrier especially when they're already having to pay for much more than what people think so look I, let's let's put all this phil in the context of the wider conversation that's happening here today sustainability do you think the sustainability discussion is an inclusive one when it comes to ethnicity I mean, I think we like to think it is, but, you know, I had a walk around uh, the venue here and I didn't see a very diverse community being represented here. I think it's... And we're in, and we're in Bristol. We're in Bristol, right. It's very easy for people who are involved to say, well, look, what about the plastic in the oceans? What about the... The, uh, the melting ice caps or the glaciers so that we can't go snowboarding all year round? What about the rainforests in, in South America? Oh, you know, I, live in, I live in South London. What do I care? What do I care? I'm more worried about the kid who died of traffic pollution on the South Circular a few years ago. You know, I'm more worried about the fact that I can't take my children to the local park because, A, there's dog mess over the place. You know, might be a little bit of nature that's given over in one corner, but that's probably a little bit dirty. 
most of it is football pitches. If you live in a block of flats, you go outside, it's all concrete. The, the nature that you see are, what, they're rats, they're uh, urban foxes, they're pigeons, they're squirrels. I had a squirrel in my loft the other day, not very good. Um, even the landscaping are urban-proof. Thorns, like rose bushes, holly bushes. You know, we, we, as a community, people who live in urban environments have lost a sense of an emotional attachment to nature. We live in, I live in London. We have eight million plus people who live in London. Out of that, the BAME community, black, Asian, minority, ethnic, not a, not a great acronym. I don't like that but let's, let's call it that for the time being. It's something like 43% of London, so over 3 million people. You're talking about surfing. Most of those people can't even swim. We haven't got swimming pools. So you say it's an inclusive space. It really isn't if you can't swim and you live miles away from the, from the beach. And even if there's a beach, there's, you know, there's, there's no waves in the local beaches to, to, to us. So... It's not an inclusive conversation. We're talking about things that really don't impact on minority groups, where I live anyway. If we want to be more inclusive, we have to start thinking about how do we talk to people in a language that they actually understand and they care about. But when, you've, when, you've, when you don't have representation in that space, as Amira says, it's not just representation up, up on the mountain, but in the you know, sustainability conversation, don't really have much representation there that can talk to different communities. Very white, you know, it's very privileged to a certain extent. It lives out of the city, mostly. And when, when we have activists come into London, shut down bridges, shut down trains, and say, oh, this is, this is because we're trying to save the planet. Dude, I want to go to work. You know, I've got, I've got kids, I've got a mortgage, I've got to put food on the table, and you're coming in and telling me I can't do that because, you know, there's hedgehogs dying in the countryside or something like that. I mean, it's not a way that we can understand. If you want to engage with new communities, you have to put it in a way that we can get an emotional attachment to. So let's come back to what some of those ways may be but you you mentioned you know surfing and the discussion around surfing so um uh melissa from from your perspective do you think the sustainability discussion is inclusive of people with disabilities no i don't um i think when it comes to disabilities and sustainability we tend to get forgotten about um we need to focus on innovation. Um, a lot of things are single use or just for, you can use it once for that one person um, and there's nothing that enables things to just be reused, passed around. The networking's not great. And then when it comes to sustainability outdoors, again, it's just the accessibility and opportunities to do it, which is lacking and exactly as you said, kind of almost needs to be localised to a certain extent to really what gets people going, what is the key area for them. Um, I live in Cornwall. The ocean for me is definitely 
that area where sustainability and owning the outdoors is really important but then you go somewhere inland and actually it could be littering or how can you stop cars driving can you have scoot the electric scooters and then if you were to look at that from a disability point of view who can access those scooters quite often you need a driving license i don't have a driving license because i can't see but i'm really good on a scooter <laughs> like anyone that's seen me in california on those scooters ace on a ramp <laughs> um and again why do you have to have a driving license to use a scooter um someone with a mobility issue they can stand on a scooter it stops them from having to walk it stops them having to use transport taxis and again it's just thinking really outside the box of breaking down those barriers and just making things more inclusive to the environment that you're in and and, and kelly obviously brighton is a bit you know a bigger significant town that's where you live um does what how does what phil said resonate with you about sustainability and uh, minority or minoritized ethnic groups um, let's get the terminology right yeah, places are not minorities I'll correct you here um no correct me if i <laughs> I'm, I'm here to be corrected too um so i'm going to break it down a little bit more so if we're going to take the first word which is sustainability first of all it needs to be looked at from an intersectional point of view Sustainability is a triad of both social, economic and environmental factors. You can't have them as standalone arguments or standalone characters. And then once you've taken each of those small or large <laughs> factors, here we're looking at the social aspects and the social barriers and what happens socially. Sustainability commonly is thought about from an environmental perspective, pollution, littering, things of that nature. But actually, sometimes it is just economics. How much money does it cost to get to the Lake District? Well, to get here, it cost me £144. If you get a train ticket from Brighton, open return to Bristol with a rail card, who can afford that multiple times a year? It's cheaper for me to go to Mallorca. So we need to think practically about how it is we're promoting sustainability and accessibility and access to the outdoors. Then we're going to talk about regional aspects and how people can relate on a, on a local level to what they consider sustainability to be. When some of our ladies come to Black Girls Hike, I've had 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, my own family members that have never seen a mountaintop. I just think that's absolutely incredible. Like, we're in... A, an amazing country, a beautiful country. We did a Black Girls Hype retreat. Um, a young lady that's travelled quite well, actually, um, came back from Bali and she said, well, if I knew this was here, I wouldn't have gone all the way there. <laughs> um, and you just think to yourself, why aren't we advertising it? Why aren't we promoting it in the same way that everybody knows how beautiful Thailand is, in the same way everybody knows how beautiful the Andes are? The highlands are beautiful and to highlight things of that nature. But how much does it cost to get there? Um, we were having a separate conversation about, you know, um, what are we allowing national governing bodies to do to intervene? What are we doing? The UK is great at policy. I have read lots and lots of amazing policy that the UK has in place. We've got no enforcement. <laughs> We've got no backup with the talk. Um, we're saying we want people to access the outdoors. We've had a whole year where we couldn't travel. But then equally, you can't do staycations if it costs £200 to stay at a B&B &B for the night. You, you need to think about things in a realistic 
point of view and sustainability can't just be thought of as a, a, a one-sided thing it's it's truly intersectional and you know what one of the you, you mentioned the finances and one of the tropes if you like around inclusivity is that um people of color like all over the phrase um uh, don't have the don't have the finance oh. to to do so all black people are broke so, <laughs> so so how does how do we get how do we get around that because that's clearly not the case if you're talking about you know you're talking about the finances of this that and the other what, how, how do we how do we solve that um so that's actually a really good point um that that's not that is the case. That is the case that popular culture likes to paint this picture that all poor brown people, all poor black people, oh, if you're disabled, you're just sitting in a corner and not doing very much. That's not the truth. I think we've all proved that we live quite happy, healthy lives. And if anything, the Olympic Games, the Paralympic Games should show that we can live to our full potentials if given the opportunity. However, sometimes it's more than just finance and projecting more than one image of what a certain group looks like. It doesn't all have to... And it doesn't mean that I'm negating the lived experience of people that have had hardship. That's not the case. But black isn't synonymous with poor. I live currently in a very poor area of Brighton, but it's majority poor working class white people. It, it, I don't have many people of BAME, if we're, we're going to use that term, people of BAME origin where I live. Um, but it doesn't take away from their deprivation. And, and where is that whole intersectionality approach to it? Um, white working class boys, they're underperforming at the moment. Let's get them in the outdoors. Let's get some um, young Asian girls in the outdoors. Let's get, if I'm honest, everyone outside. Everyone outside. <laughs> Let's get everyone I think we'd outside. all agree that that's a good thing. Um, Amira, the sustainability question. Do you, to what extent do you think... Uh, and again, look, I recognise the you know kind of crass generalisation in this question. Uh, to what extent do you think that Muslim women are included in the in the nation's discussion around sustainability? So I think it goes back to what Kelly and um, Phil were saying in regards to like you have to educate them in a way that they're going to understand. So you know, doing like protests and stuff in like inland sort of areas and stuff, they're not going to understand. They're going to think what's going on, and I think it's. Again, it's about like the educational side of it as well. Like a lot of people are not known to these things, and they're not brought up knowing everything about the outdoors. So you know, they just think if they're doing their bit at home in terms of recycling, that's their bit done. But um, so what we're trying to do now as a group is not just take people out, but to have sustainable events, retreats, and stuff to help them understand there are other ways to help the environment. Um, and then again, it goes back to like the traveling side of things. Like a lot of the places, you know, people are from sort of like you know city, inner city areas, and to get to these places, it, it if they don't drive or you know there's no transport, it, there, are, there are these sort of barriers as well. Like for me, um, obviously we talked about meeting my mountain leader. If I hadn't moved to the lakes, it would have been really hard for me to do my training, do my courses, do all these things. So I had to be in an area where it was open open for me to just go and have that access um but many people they don't have that so again i think it's just talking about the different sort of barriers there are and you you recently just came back from from austria right yeah 
and uh, was that with the group T- tell us about that and what your experience of it was, was. Um, it was my first trip actually wearing the veil because um, I only started wearing it like uh, two years ago and as soon as I got because you know, these things are not just happening in the countryside it's happening in sort of general life uh, gen- you know generally wherever you are so um, like I went with the group and we were working with Jack Wolfskin and we were doing this women's campaign and as soon as I got to the airport like I got taken into a room and I had to take off my hijab and niqab and everything and they did full checks and that was the same in Austria as well like they did the same thing were, Was anyone else subjected to enhanced security? No, just myself yeah. Should I ask why? Because again I think it goes back to what media portrays a veiled woman as and I think it's just generally a thing that happens to a lot of women that wear the hijab. And I know that a lot of places within Europe have had the ban now in terms of wearing the veil. Um, and the hijabs are not France, Switzerland, I think Austria and were in the process of it. So I was a bit worried about that. But as soon as I got to Austria as well, I was in an area where they probably have never seen anyone look like me. So the stares that I was, I was getting along the way, because even the group recognised it. So I'm quite like, I switch off like now. So the group were like, oh, did you see that person? Look at you like that. And I was like, oh no, I didn't realise. And they're like, they literally turned around and they just, they were a bit shocked seeing you. So, and then again, on the way back, um, everyone got through security, but I had to be taken into a room and they checked everything, made me take everything off. So these sort of things happen, not just within countryside, but in like sort of general areas. And, 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 and sorry to, to pry, and I, I I'm kind of very conscious that often as people of colour, women, we are asked to reveal publicly potentially traumatic things so i don't if the stuff you don't want to share that is absolutely fine i i honor that um did you were the looks that you received in austria hostile curious surprised what was your experience of just being you in that space um, because I was with such a powerful group of women and who were all doing different things for the, for the outdoors, it made me a lot more comfortable being with them and being with that group. But I think if I was to go myself with my group, who we are, because in that group we had like different sort of races and different sort of like different women of different colour. But if I was to go with my group, I don't think I'd feel, feel as comfortable being in an area like that because I know what you know someone can look at you and to one person it might not be but that look to someone else can really put a person going out because we actually have had had you know a lot of islamophobic hate crime given to us whilst being on the hills um so again if someone was to go on their own and they were to receive that it could really stop them from going out again so um, for me, you know, I just, I just put a sort of barrier cloud over me and I'm fine with it. But I worry more about my group because a lot of them, it's their first time accessing that space. And you want it to be a positive experience? Yeah, definitely. Now, Phil, you, you've had the, the, you know, the, the, the pleasure of visiting the Alps for, for many years, right? Um, and I just wondered if what your reflections were on how your experience of being a a black or brown man in that space has changed over the years and just how you reflected what your reflections are on hearing Amira talk about her experience of being a veiled woman in that space um yeah I mean I was I've been lucky enough my grandfather shipped me off to the ski club of Great Britain as a as a 10 year old I think just to you know get involved in in mountain culture and it was either 
you know, enjoy it or sit in the corner and be picked on, you know, and I decided to enjoy it. Uh, and I've spent many years uh, backwards and forwards in the Alps. Um, has it changed? No, absolutely not. Um, I've been going there, like I say, for almost 40 years of, of my life uh, and very rarely see people of colour uh, skiing or snowboarding or enjoying the Alps, uh, which, is, which is crazy. And you get people saying, oh, well, you know, black people don't, don't like the mountains, don't like the Alps. I mean, you know, Ethiopia is 3,000 metres. The plain of Ethiopia is 3,000 metres. You know, it's, it's just nonsense. Right? It's just that we don't have representation there. Uh, we don't have people in positions of authority that are making decisions that impact in a positive way our community. And if, and if they do, and this is a point that Kelly made, you know, is that you can't call just black people, you know, oh, it's the black community. You know, in Africa, you have 54 different countries where everyone is black. It's like saying the Irish are the, are the same as the people who live in southern Italy. They're, not, they're totally different cultures. They're different people. So until we start thinking about people of colour in those terms, I, I think it's difficult for, for people to move forward. I would say, though, that over the last couple of years, and I believe that lockdown, the pandemic, and George Floyd's murder has, has shifted the dial in that respect. People have had time, I believe, to reflect on the fragility of life and the options and the privilege that are given to some and not others. And I've really noticed that in the work that I do with, with brands and organisations, there are new conversations that are starting and people are actually making decisions that, aren't, that, that go beyond just performative action. You know? So it's, it's more than just, let's put a black face on our Instagram account, which, which you should be doing anyway, right? You know, some people still aren't should be doing that but it needs to go beyond that you need to start having people you know if you if we're talking about the mountains you need to have people who who are in positions of power from those communities that can talk to you know, the the wider uh wider society out there to try and get them involved but at the moment if we're talking specifically about mountain culture i don't see many people doing that reaching out to new communities and as Kelly said as well you know there's money there there's a there's a commercial conversation that we can have in the UK alone we've got over eight well 14 15 percent of of the UK comes from a black and Asian community no one's talking to them and the new, the new census will, will tell us more. So, look, we are, we are approaching the end of the session, and I, I'm curious to hear from, from the three of you just one thing in your work you want from allies. When you are not in the room, what do you want the people in this room to be arguing for on your behalf? Let's start with you, Amira. What would make your, what would make your work easier, like real practical stuff? Um, so I think for me, I started this group not having no sort of mentorship, just do this group and I didn't know how big it was going to go and I was in a position where I've, 
had so many things coming at me and I didn't have no guidance, if that makes sense. And I feel like then, you know, it's all good and fair, like how up to us to get out there and create these groups and safe spaces. But then it's like a really important fact is that we need that support um, to have like some sort of mentorship, especially if you've never done anything like this before in terms of how we can make your group better what can we do um can we get more people in your group you know to become leaders instead of people keep coming at you saying oh we'd love to use you for this and it's like no 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 i don't need that i just need the support in terms of how we can make it a more of a a wider project so so, so the call to people here is if you know of and respect and uh, and admire the work of a of a group doing grassroots work get in touch with them and say how can i help you not, not just can you be the face of my campaign. Yeah. yeah. Um, Kelly and Melissa, quick word. What would help you? Pay me for my time. Yep. <laughs> True that. Like, um, yeah, pay me, innit? Run me my money. Uh, <laughs> Enough said. Melissa. Just ask those awkward questions that everyone's thinking and no one wants to ask because they're so afraid of offending someone. Unless you ask, we're just going to be in this same position. You've been a wonderful panel. You've been a wonderful audience. Thank you very much indeed. Phil, Melissa, Kelly and Amira. We hope that conversation's inspired you and given you some proper, actionable insight. Please look out for the next episode. And if you haven't signed up for the film versions, please visit the Blue Earth website at blueearthsummit.com. Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.